Okay, to all our awesome listeners out there, 990 Talk brought to you by Michael Knopf with Draper Kramer Mortgage Corp. Awesome mortgage broker, Michael Knopf. Give him a call at 847-239-7804. If you have not already texted him, you should definitely shoot him a text message. Just be like, yo, what's up? 773-234-7896. Michael Knopf, Draper Kramer Mortgage Corp. Hey. Hey, Mom, what's up? Really, what I really want to know is how supportive Maka is of this podcast venture. Believe it or not, you're going to be really excited about this, but uh, we are... Probably not. If you and I are you're calling me about something. Okay. <laughs> well, that went well. <laughs> I think she hung up. <laughs> you guys are so bored. Seriously. <laughs> are you going to listen to it? Well, I don't know. I so I don't always listen to things that really relate to my life. <laughs> wow, that that hurts. Oh, that that's that is great. Right in the gut. <clears throat> I mean, you guys have nothing better to do with your time. I figured it's about time you do something. Now you're obviously very bored because you have no idea if it was going to actually be happening. You guys just have to... <laughs> We're calling it 990 yeah. Talk. A lot of people out there think that those who can't make profit work in nonprofit, and that may or may not be true. You know, we're just like two dudes in, in a world that most people are focused on chasing every dollar. We kind of just want to show people that there's a niche for guys like us. In the meantime, we're out to at least talk about what it means to work in nonprofit. You know, just like changing the world is more important. So. Do me and you can do you, but I'm going to do what I love, do what I love. I'm going to do me and you can do you. Hello. Everybody, and welcome back to 990 Talk. Strula Bogopolsky with Ari Strulowitz in the studio, and uh, we're back, and that's pretty awesome. Um, Ari, what do you think about the, the rain last night? Out of control. It rained last night? Were you sleeping? No, just kidding. Um, yeah, it's one of those things, you know, I think a lot of homeowners, it's like an adulting moment. Um, I think those all those homeowners out there can relate when that rain is like really pouring in. You know, you're like just you're like trying not to, but want to know if any rain is water seeping in into the basement. Well, here's my real uh, my real thoughts on it. Um, I'm really bad at watering my grass, so on a typical year where we don't get a lot of rain, by June like my grass is dead. So I am actually uh, I don't really mind when it rains because that bails me out of landscaping. Yeah, I mean, there, I think there is such a thing as, like, too much rain for your grass. Well, um, my grass is green right now. My basement is not flooded. So, win is overall. Is it dry? Is yeah. It? Okay, good. I think so. So, awesome. overall, that's a win. Um, and, and yeah, how's your how's your day going? My day's going pretty well. I had um, one, of those, one of those moments, you know. Um, so, I'm sure everybody's been there. You know, red light cameras are brutal. Um, they catch you sometimes when you least expect it. A lot of people I know, even if you know that a particular light has a red light camera, like you still risk it for some reason. Uh, so a red light ticket comes in. It was obvious from the envelope was a red light ticket. Open it up. And hundred bucks. Shabam. Right there. My wife's minivan busted on camera. Red light. It wasn't even a speeding through a red light. I think it looked like it was a, it was a right turn. At a red light, and the camera got it. And I was like, yo, Avigail, hello, red light ticket. And uh, I made her feel bad about it, um, which I probably should never have done anyways. But then 
she comes back to me a few minutes later and she's like, uh, bad news. I'm like, what? She is. You were driving. And I was like, oh, man. So I'm sure that happens to people out there. It's true. I was driving her car, and that was my red light ticket, and I should have never shamed her for it. So all you spouses out there, just be nice to your other your spouse. That's all. Also, I, if I'm not mistaken, you should not be one to know your driving record is suspect. Well, it's funny you should mention that, actually. Because, so uh, those that are close to me may or not may or may not know that um, my driver's license has been suspended in multiple states. <laughs> this is this may be too much for our listeners here, but go on. Um, but um, tell us more. A few years ago, okay. You know, in my defense, once we're going to talk about this, in my defense, so yes, it was going back uh, summer of twenty sixteen. Um, I was headed down to camp. It was Father's Day, like the usual day that I'm 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 moving into camp at least by myself, and um, I got I got pulled over pretty bad. I forgot which county it was in. Um, it may come to me, but unlike Illinois, so Indiana doesn't like really have like a good computer system. You know, I don't. You can't really pay them online. Um, you get a ticket, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you can call the clerk um, in you know two maybe even three weeks, give them a chance to, to file the ticket. And you're like, what, in three weeks I'm supposed to remember that I, I got a ticket and I'm going to call and pay it over the phone. And like, there's no, you can't like just, you can't just go on a website and check it out. So it's like Indiana, yo, come on, get with the times a little bit. Um, so I forgot about it, which is so normal because I'm a camp director and it was in the middle of the summer and I totally forgot that I had a ticket. And, um, and then I got a notice that my my driver's license was suspended in Indiana, like in the fall afterwards. No big deal. Illinois DMV was pretty cool about it, and they helped me out. They squared it up. And then this past summer, I um, I got pulled over in Wisconsin, and um, same thing. I just forgot about it. They don't have a good automated system, and uh, they they suspended my my driver's license. You I seem actually, to you seem to place a lot of blame on the states as opposed to taking the blame yourself. Well, I'm. I'm sorry. Is is there blame for me to be? T- what what blame should I Meaning be taking like, right now? We've just uh, we've just uncovered the fact that your driver's license I has been suspended. Foot. Okay, I in got two it. in two states, and it's not even your fault. You're saying it's only the state's fault. No, no. Listen, it's my fault for getting a ticket. Um, it's my fault for getting a ticket. It's it's not my fault for, I guess, missing the payment. Is yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. I mean, whatever. It's not. That's not my fault. Their fault. You're it's saying a shared, so. It's a in shared, essence, your 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 suspension is not I because. How do get on this? What second? You're saying your suspension is not because of your driving habits. It's just because of your lack of timely payments. Correct. The suspension should not be my fault. But I got a friend who hooked me up, and and uh, someone ran a PBA card. <laughs> just a couple of days ago, someone ran my driver's license just to see what my driving record was, and according to those results, um, my driver's license is currently cleared in both those states. So. All is well that ends well. I well, guess. so we've just spent a lot of time, you know, speaking about traveling out of state. So uh, I think that's a great segue into our Mount Trashmore of the day, yeah. which is business travel. Business travel. So Ari and I spend uh, we spend some time on the road. I don't spend nearly as much on the road as he does um, out there recruiting, but we go to conferences and uh, we definitely spend some time. Old news, by the way. I don't travel as much since my I passed out on an airplane, but that's not for now. That's not for now. No, I, I passed out on an airplane on the way into LaGuardia. Passed out. Bam. Flat. Okay. They carried um, me off on a stretcher. Oh, I remember a big that. deal. I got taken to a hospital, 
and they didn't let me leave. Okay? Okay. Well, um, there's some good stories from that story, but I think it's for another time. Let's keep the listeners just. Uh, I think my favorite get their, line. Get their ears perked a little bit. Now they're I think my favorite. Excited. I think my favorite part of the story was when I was being wheeled into Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. Like they don't know that I'm from Chicago. They don't even know that I came from the airport. Like they don't know any of it. They just see a guy being wheeled into the emergency room, and they stop me at the entrance, like admissions, and they're like, "Have you ever been here before?" I said, "Yeah." I was born here, and that was the last time. Was, I was that like there. a mic drop, or like? I mean, it felt like a mic drop, but they didn't. She was like totally unfazed, could not care less. She's like, "That's really not relevant." She's to like, this. "Okay, that doesn't help me much." Yes, I'm like, "Well, you could probably look me up at the computer." I'm not like 80 years old. Anyways, yeah, okay. I used to travel a lot, so I'll I'll kick this one off. Um, may or may not be a couple a couple hot takes here. Number one is is definitely not a hot take, but I it. I, you can't talk about traveling for business without mentioning this, especially if you're a family that travels and that's traveling for business means you're traveling alone and traveling alone is, um, is awesome. It's just, it's just awesome. You can't compare. And if you do travel with family, like going through security with five children and your wife and, and bottles and snacks and bags and strollers and like, there is nothing like going back to the exact same airport just a week later, TSA pre-check, and flying through security without taking off your shoes, nothing. Short is number one is going to definitely be um, flying with uh, without family. Flying alone is just an awesome thing, and um, it's just like you got time for yourself, and it's smooth, and it's typically easier. Number two, I'm a big, like, I have, like, everyone, I mean, a lot of frequent travelers have their routine, and a lot of frequent travelers have their items of clothing that like are, are good for travel. I'm very big on, on a, the right pair of shoes. Um, there are particular shoes that I think still look good. Business casual that fly. Well, when you say fly, well, you mean like your feet don't expand too much in them and flight. Right. So everyone knows that your feet swell up, um, on airplanes and mm-hmm. then, yeah, you just want to come I'm not, I mean, I have, I'm not like, a, like a serial take my shoe off type of guy on an airplane. Oh dude. No, I didn't say I'd do that. No, we, I don't, don't, we don't do that. I mean, I've done it. We don't, but we don't do that. We don't endorse that. I mean, I, I shower before I fly, so I'm not like... Yeah, but once you're putting it up to everyone's, I guess, uh, discretion, okay, yeah. it's the Just, down, that's the downfall of society right there. I, I happen to like flying in all birds. Okay. Um, they're just a good, comfortable shoe, and they kind of stretch with my foot, and they don't look, you know, they look pretty put together. But I'm a camp guy, so business fl- business travel for me has never been like... I don't, it's not very formal. I'm always like dressed down, you know? What are yeah. your first two? So my number one on the Mount Trashmore of flying for business is uh, packing light and uh, not checking bags. It's a little bit similar to your first, but it's also different. Um, there is nothing like just walking to the terminal, walking straight through security, getting on the plane, putting your bag in the overhead, going, taking it off, and walking right out. And also in that light... Um, this is kind of like a 1A. I do this a lot, but I thought this was important. My other thing is that um, when I travel for business, typically it's like a one or two day trip, three at ma- three max, and I rationalize that I could park in the daily lot because <laughs> because I'm like, wait, 40 bucks a day, that's the same price as an Uber there and back to the airport. Park in the daily lot, okay, that's walk not a, right that's in like a baller. A that's not a 1A. It's its own? It's like, yeah. I mean, I'll let you do just a trash more of five, I guess, because you already dropped that. Okay. But that's like its entire own thing. But yeah, hundred percent. I love the daily lot. One time, I uh, I even actually I hate to say this, but like I I flew to San Diego for two weeks and I still did the daily lot. It was five hundred bucks, but it was 
<laughs> Probably the greatest experience of my life. Well, for those of you uh, Chicago-based people, and if you fly American, so at O'Hare, if you go to Lot C, you park at the end of the lot. That's an hourly, so on a day, you know, an in-out day trip, I'll do that, and you can park right by the fence. There's a little hole in the fence. You hop across the street there, and you're right in the terminal, and it's it's gold. And I'm off the plane and in the car in no time. I would even argue that daily lot's better than valet. Because yeah. you control your own destiny. It's quicker. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely quicker. Okay. Um, That's my number one and 1A one yeah. slash two. My actual number two. Oh, sorry. No, that was my number two. Oh. Daily Lot Parking. Okay, so then good. All right, good. I'm, I'm happy I uh, I helped you out. That that was number two. All right, number three for me. Um, This may be a little bit cliche, but... um. And I'm not like I don't always do this, but once in a while you'll you know either in a lounge or whatever you'll you'll get a drink a little bit earlier in the day, and um, what, it's, t- what time are we when you say early? It depends. Again, since that whole pass out thing on the airplane, right? So you so never is it, is it related an to anxious this? Anxious flyer. So I'm I'm definitely like eyeing a drink a little bit more. That's probably not the healthiest thing to admit over the podcast, but th- whatever. Short of it is. Flying, and for sure, when you're flying alone or business, to have a drink at any hour of the day is really, you're not, no one, you don't see like judging eyes, you know? And that's, that's like a nice, I like being in, in judgment free zones. Okay. Okay. Um, number four. It's ironic me. because I feel like typically airports are not judgment free zones because, like, I don't know, like, people are judging you when it comes to, like, the boarding line, and people are judging you when it comes to your carry-on situation, and people are judging you if, like, you're sitting in first class, humble flex, I've only done it one time, and they walk by and they see they give you that look. Yeah, that is a judge. But, yeah, for some reason, you're right. Drinking, you don't really judge people for drinking when they're flying, unless they're obviously inebriated when they get on an airplane. I've, had a, an bad, entire, I've, had, I've had a bad story like that yeah, once. Yeah, so oh I had God. one flight once oh. where I sat next to a guy who was totally wasted, and I was just like... I spent the whole flight hoping he wasn't going to vomit. It was horrible. All right, but that's enough of that. Number four for me may be my hottest take. Um, and again, I want to. I want to. You know, I, obviously in the summer I don't travel at all, but in the recruitment season, you know, there were certain years where I was going at least one or two cities a week for a stretch of like a good 10, 10 weeks. Um, and I am like super, super particular. I always want to have with me uh, a printed paper boarding pass what yes why i'm so happy you they're so annoying way. i like no. i get like ocd so you have to watch sec- your boarding yeah, pass you have to watch your, your check bags ticket thing if you have your kids you have the stroller give check me, give paper thing give me a second first of all i'm talking business travel only so as a family i i probably will also actually print paper i know i'm always into paper and i'll explain to you why it's very simple um there's a lot that can go wrong with the phone first of all you know i'm not always the best at making sure my phone's charged. Um, I even, I'll wear an Apple watch. I hate watching people get up there with the Apple watch and try to like in the most like maneuver it. Yeah. Try to like figure out how to awkwardly like twist their arm over the thing. And it doesn't even scan because they're ready back to like whatever other app they were playing with. Same thing on the phone. You just watch people fumble with the phone. I know it sounds crazy because it's one more thing to have, but it's paper, and it's the only paper I carry with an asterisk there. I'll get back to that. It's the only paper I carry. I am old school, and I like the paper boarding pass. I could hold on to it. I stuff it in my pocket. Or, or you know, if I'm, it's international travel, that's for sure easy. You just slide it into your passport. It's just I like the hard paper boarding pass. And Would you I say am, that you're also like a, hard, like, a, like a hard ticket for sporting events guy? 
Um, no, not, um, uh, yeah, give or take. Not the same way. I don't mind. That's like a one time, you know, you're like walking in. It's like a long line. Yeah, but it's sentimental. Especially if you're oh, like, uh, yeah, like a hoarder no, no, who collects sure. tickets. That's, that's, okay, if it's like a sentiment. I'm talking by about way, a random uh, Tuesday by night. By the way, just a uh, quick, uh, quick thing here. So our guest, Mike Frazen, um, he actually has been to probably almost every uh, iconic sporting event in the history of Chicago. So we could ask him about that. Um, but go on, yeah. Yeah, we should ask him if he's a digital ticket or a paper ticket guy. Okay. Absolutely. You know, I think sporting events, obviously, you're right. If it's like a random Tuesday night in the middle of the winter Blackhawks game, I don't care to have a paper ticket to hold on to. Yes, I have saved some some Blackhawk playoff ticket um, tickets there. No big deal. Um, I did see them in the Stanley Cup. I just didn't see them win the Cup. No big deal. But, yeah, I'm a, I'm a paper boarding pass guy. And similar to that is I'm also a cash traveler. So I'm not like a big cash guy, but when I travel, it's just something I've gotten. I don't know where I got this from. I always have to have cash. I mean, when I travel, for sure, road trips. But even when I'm flying, it's like cash. So I guess I'm more like an old school guy like that when I travel. I like my paper boarding pass, and I like to have cash on me. Or you could say that because you have a suspect driving record, and maybe you might be wanted in multiple states, you travel without a paper trail. You never know when you're going to get you know. Because that's what it sounds like. You never know when you're going to get shaken down. Cash only. Nah, we're gonna move on from that. Okay. By the way, by the way, you run a risk with your phone and your Wi-Fi and your and your and your boarding pass on there. No, but hold and, on. And, no, and, 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 and Listen, be hello, honest. Hello, hello, one second. second. No, it's you good. one second me. And be honest. Oh you fumbled with your phone before in your boarding pass. Have you not? I have not. I don't believe that. And to the contrary, if you are the type of person you've got, you know, you're on your own business. You've got your rolling. You're in a nice blazer, and you just can scan your phone smoothly. You look like a boss. I'm, I don't care how I... It's not about how you look, man. I'm just saying. You have, okay, you well, have guess together. what? You're just saying, and I'm just saying, I don't care. Paper tickets are the way to go because paper's reliable. Okay, next. Um, my number three is uh, going to be... So I'm not uh, a huge credit card guy, um, but it's very important to travel with people who are. So my number three is uh, is bumming uh, executive lounge access off Ari. <laughs> okay. Yes. There's a value, and it's there's point, a value. Travel and at those some people, point, and at some point, I in. should probably bill you. You get bananas, I you get probably, some coffee, some I, yogurt. Yeah, you owe me money. That's, a shower. Yeah, you owe me money. Free Wi-Fi. Yeah, that's that. That's yeah, my number three. You definitely owe me money. And um, <clears throat> my number four is if you're traveling for business, you're probably staying in a hotel. If you're staying in a hotel, bathrobes. Don't wear a bathrobe at home. What? A bathrobe? You wear the bathrobes when we go when we go to hotels? No, but in theory, you could. <laughs> So you just like bathrooms. I'm just saying, like, I feel like I can't be a bathroom guy at home, but like in a hotel, like you can get away with it. That's like the one place you can get away with bathrooms. Yeah, no, I, I'm not disagreeing. I actually do wear a bathroom sometimes at home. All right, let's move on. One second, one more. Am I just last one, which is really, it was like my... This is an honorable mention? Yeah, it's just that when you when you travel for business, you got to be like, I'm here on business. Who? who why? When are you asked the question of why are you here that you get to answer? I'm what, all the time. Business. You never have been asked, like, oh, what brings you to town? I'm here on business. Um, maybe I'm not as friendly as you. That I could be. I don't. I, uh, I'm Usually the people I'm interacting with are the people that, like, know why I'm there. Okay. I guess, I guess, no, it's not true. I guess I'll have, I'll have like, a. If I'm, a like, in New York and I bump into my friends, they'll be like, why are you here? They're no. not just going to assume why I'm there. Well, I don't, I'm not, I'm not as curt. To only answer, I'm here for business. I would probably tell them why I was here because I I care about them. I want them to know. Okay, but you just like okay, whatever. You gotta yeah. leave it to the imagination. Yeah, you like to to roll in with your suit and your 
your digital boarding pass and telling people you're there for business. I'm more of like a, you know. Well, now that I'm back in camping, I only foresee myself now traveling in a hoodie. So. Exactly. It's the best. And also, you're just like everybody else. You're traveling for work, but they're stuck wearing a suit and tie, and you're just chilling in, 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 in more comfortable clothing. What a life. What a life. Okay. We now move on to our interview. And uh, today, um, we are lucky to have on probably one of my favorite people in Chicago. His name is Mike Frazen. He has a fascinating story um, in terms of his you know, personal background his professional background, and then his uh, his his uh, his venturing into the non for profit world. He's involved in a variety of causes. Um, he served on the board and as the board chair at Asrui, which is the URJ camp in Chicagoland. What does Asrui stand for? Olin Sang Ruby Union Institute. Very good. Oh, I nailed it. Yeah. Um, so he was the board chair there for a long time. He's involved with a few other organizations, um, and he's he's the man. He has a heart of gold, and uh, I'm. Uh, Really looking forward to this interview, and it's going to be a lot of fun. We've traveled with Mike, by the way. Yes. Oh, yeah. One time we saw him in the airport. <laughs> and what like, was he wearing? He was wearing like a like a. He was decked out like all was it Cubs? Cubs? It was all Cubs stuff. What was it? it was like a like a goat T-shirt. Yeah, but it was like really <laughs> early in the morning. Was it after or before they won the World Series? It was that season. It must have been right after. <laughs> it was probably some like cartoon T-shirt or something. Like I don't care about Billy Goats or something. Oh my gosh, that was. Yeah, he's like yeah, he was like early. He's a smiley, fun guy. Early, yeah. in the, early in the morning. So uh, we now welcome to the show one of my favorite people. Um, I think uh, I'm. I, I think I like him so much, partially because we're very similar. So I'm going to run through a couple of comparisons, and you're going to say check after every single one. Okay. Well, you haven't even said his name yeah. yet. His name is Mike Frazen. Here we okay. go. Okay, we are both the sons of rabbis who served in California. Yes, check. We both are not taller than five foot seven. Check. We both <laughs> married up significantly. Uh, how many times can I check? Uh, we'll say two. Two checks. Okay. okay. Check, check. And uh, we're both good at golf. Yeah, okay. You know you, you could do No, that. that's good. That is, <laughs> whatever the opposite of the check is. Mike, I'm happy you didn't answer check. That's all that matters. <laughs> I'm not saying that Julie's that not good in golf, but I used to be good. I'm okay. not good anymore. So let's well, just leave it at that. Yeah, he, he, yes, really was never good. So It was a trick question. It was a it trick was, question. All right, but for real, Mike, really happy to have you on the show. Um, you know, we've met Thank a bunch you. of times. You've been super involved and influential yeah. and in the non-for-profit world, particularly the Jewish non-for-profit world and camps, et cetera. So it's really an honor to have you on. Thank you. It's an honor to be here with two up-and-coming superstars. Oh, flattered. Anyway, Mike, um, can you, uh, if you don't mind, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and like your personal background and your professional background, and then we'll segue into your involvement in the, in the non-for-profit community. Sure. So I'm a Hebrew Union College baby. My dad was getting his rabbinic uh, sweet bat at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. So I was born in Cincinnati. Moved to St. Louis right after that. And then we settled in Rockford, Illinois. Not the greatest uh, group of Jewish individuals in one spot, but I learned a lot there. Um, and we lived there since 1974. And my father took a temple in Sacramento, California, which interestingly enough, 
was torn apart because some of the leaders of the temple didn't do things that you would say were too Jewish. Um, I was, uh, it was the worst time in my life because I was a big shot in Rockford as a sophomore in high school. I played on the football team. I know five, five people don't play football, but I did. And, uh, so I was there for two years, hated every moment. It's, uh, hated it. Went to UC Davis. Um, I learned my business acumen from working at Burger King full time, even while I went to the University of California, Davis. Um, and but even though I learned that, I decided to go to law school because that's what I said when I was eight years old. Um, I then went to a semester of law school, hated it, went back to Burger King for the rest of the semester, and then went to UCLA. And here's an interesting story. I applied to three business schools, Harvard, Stanford, UCLA, knowing I wasn't getting into Harvard. And the reason I applied to three business schools is in 1969 or 1971, Lou Alcindor played Elvin Hayes on Ms. Lou TV, and I was in Rockford, Illinois, and I thought at that moment, I'm going to UCLA. Some of a rabbi is not going to UCLA from Rockford, Illinois. You're saying they need, they need, they need, a, they need a five-foot-five point guard? I wanted to go to UCLA to watch basketball. <laughs> the year before I went, they finished second in the national championship. I turned down Stanford, got into Stanford with a full ride, turned down Stanford, went to UCLA, saw one basketball game in the two years because they were under 500 the whole time. To make matters worse, Stanford beat us four times, and John Elway was the quarterback. (laughs) The good part is I met Patty Rosenwald, who became Patty Fraser. Okay. So that's a – We came out with a win. Yeah, that's a win. After that, I – Actually, I didn't finish at UCLA. That wasn't true. Um, I was talking more about my MBA. I came back to Chicago. My uncle was one of the original floor brokers on the Chicago Border Options Exchange. He said, you come back and work for me for the summer. I came back, never went back to UCLA um, because one of the biggest trading firms in the world, who was only had one person in Chicago at that point, Susquehanna, hired me. I worked for them, then went on my own and started my own company in 2004. I led a search for our rabbi at BJBE, which was in Glenview at the time, but now is in Deerfield. Thought that I could do other things with my life, decided not to go back to trading, and a year later, I became partners in a construction company. I know nothing about construction. In fact, I used to say that anybody who drinks too much of one thing gets the other. And anybody who drinks too many screwdrivers gets hammered. And that's all I know about construction. <laughs> but we grew the business uh, for in a lot of ways, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But one of them was uh, the strategies that I brought in, brought in from owning a, a trading company and, and going to school and learning about business. Okay. So then with all this professional experience you were having, um, what was your involvement in non-for-profit work? Uh, interestingly enough, my first connection, so let me go back a second. My father was a lectern slamming rabbi. He is as liberal as they come, and there are times that we have to say we can't talk. Um, he marched with Martin Luther King in Selma. He marched with Martin Luther King in Washington, D.C. He is credited in in the reform movement. He started the collection of food on the high holy days. He, I, my brother and sister are adopted. 
because my parents had two Tay-Sex children, two children who died of Tay-Sex. And I don't know how a rabbi goes on like that. I was five. I'm genetic. I was five. My brother was three when he died. And my mom had an abortion and nobody had an abortion. And she really didn't recover mentally, although she lived for many years after that. My, do- my dad decided to do something with his life. And when he got to California, which was right around the time of the abortion, he made sure that in California, Tay-Sachs testing was mandatory. He became the head, of the, the chair of the California Grand Jury two times because uh, nobody had done that since. The synagogue is also one that was bombed multiple times because they hated him because he didn't see color. Um, he would march with anybody who needed marching with. He was a Zionist. He went to Israel many times, but he didn't necessarily believe they were always 100% perfect, although he loved everything about being Jewish. And so the Ku Klux Klan tried to kill him. Um, another, so three different times. Um, eventually, after my dad had retired to Arizona, a bomb did go off in the temple and blew up the library he left for the temple. So I learned a lot from him. Uh, interestingly enough, we went, Patty and I, right after we got married, went to our first JUF event, and they started calling cards, and we were scared to death and had nothing to do with the JUF uh, 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 or whatever it was called back then, and that was back in the 1990s. And uh, my first board was, I can't, as, like all of us, I, uh, it just makes me nauseous to see sick children. Um, and so I joined the Children's Memorial Hospital Junior Board. Um, there's another story for another time. I went to the White House because of that. Um, but uh, I just fell in love with raising money for not-for-profit. Um, got involved in the JUS because a really good friend, Arnie Harris, uh, asked me to go on a thing called Nakshon. So Nakshon in Israel is the first. Nakshon was the first person to go in the water uh, in Egypt in front of uh, Moses. And um, so this trip was called Nakshon. Started, to, um, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 years ago with nine people going back to Israel in 2003 after the Uh And I joined year three, and it changed my life um, uh, the minimum gift was, you know, many thousands. And before I came home from my nurse, and I had given $360 to the JUF before that. That was my maximum gift. And before I came home, I had given many, many, many more thousands to many, many organizations I had never heard of. And that's where it started. Um, my wife, um, who is the great, great niece of Julius Rosenwald, probably the greatest Jewish philanthropist ever, certainly the greatest in Chicago or from Chicago, um, uh, went on to run our capital campaign at our synagogue, which moved us from Glenview to Deerfield. And the Jewish United Fund found out about her, and she's in her 10th year as one of the fundraisers for the Jewish United Fund. So we're all in on that. Um, I, I, I believe in spreading it around. My motto is that the person who dies with the most money loses. And I hope that uh, my children understand that when I don't give them everything. <laughs> Actually, I love that. That's uh, they always, I, I, someone is always quoted for saying the, uh, no, nobody cares who's the richest person in the cemetery. So. Yep. That's exactly right. 
So also, Mike, so um, you were also, when did you become the, uh, the board chair at Asrui? And uh, also, if you could talk to us about your involvement in the Israeli Sen- uh, Sports Center for the Disabled. We'd like to hear about that. So Asrui is an interesting story because I did live in Rockford through 1974, and I am probably the only camp chair, a previous camp chair that ever ran away from the camp they were chair of. That is a true story. I was a pretty good baseball player. I was told I had to go to camp by my dad, who was very involved. There's a lot of rabbis who are involved in the camps that they are, um, are included with. And uh, it was reform, so we aren't as strict, possibly, on some of the ways that uh, Jews manage their lives and follow uh, the laws. And so I was playing softball on a team that was undefeated, and the the, the it rained on Thursday, it rained on Friday, and this reform camp where people didn't necessarily eat the right kind of food decided we cannot play the softball championship on Saturday. I ran away. Uh, there were no cell phones. There was no anything. I don't know how I thought my parents were going to know I was a mile away, but they brought me back. Wait, um, wait, wait, wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You ran away you, from camp? I was you ran 11 away from years old. Yeah. Wait, wait, where's that's relocated? It's in uh, Wisconsin, right? Oconomowoc, yeah. Wisconsin, between so, Madison and Milwaukee. So what was your what was your strategy that day? Where were you going? He was 11. I had my little suitcase. I walked to the end of the street called Lac LaBelle, which is probably a mile-long road going into the camp. As most camps are, they should be pretty set back from the regular street. And I just waited. And how that and, did, did you get picked up? Um, interestingly enough, Rabbi Mark Shapiro built BJBE, merging two synagogues, and his wife-to-be was a counselor, and she came and got me. <laughs> so everything's meant to be, right? Um, the synagogue I belong to, uh, the rabbi's wife came and got me. Oh, she wasn't the wife. Yeah, I was really, and then two years later, my parents decided to move me to Sacramento, California in the middle of the summer. So I was not a real happy kid. Um, Missing campers is like up there on our list of things that keep us that keep us awake at night. I um, I uh, there were some people that knew. <laughs> Let's just say that. Okay. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I was at least smart enough to know that I didn't want to die out there. Who uh, who was the director then? Um, it was it was the year I believe. No, it was Jerry Tate. I it was Jerry. Jerry Tate. Does he remember yeah, the Does he remember the story? Yes. He didn't necessarily remember it until I told it to him. So, um, so you were generally a camp chair for two two-year terms. So for four years, I was the chair, but I was asked to come on the board two years before that, only two years before it. They knew about my fundraising. They knew, I think, that I was capable of giving. They knew that I hired the rabbis in our very large reform synagogue, and they groomed me for two years, so much so that I would go to camp a bunch of times during those two years just to learn the names of the buildings or to know where they were, because I knew nothing about the camp. I was not prepared as uh, most camp chairs are. You know, I didn't know the history, none of that. I read a book that was written about it. And, um, and, uh, I think that was okay. Uh, I had an argument with a longtime board person once, and he called me a name of somebody that was a longtime Asuri person. And when he stopped 
arguing with me. I said, I don't know who that person is, but I suspect that you don't really like him. <laughs> and so that's what it was. In the four years, we did some amazing things. Nobody wanted to be the chair when Jerry T announced that he was leaving. I got that honor. And uh, it made a very tough situation, a very sad situation, but we did a really good job, I think. Yeah, you picked, up, a, Sally, you know, you picked up Sally Kane. Yeah, Sally Kane. Is, is right? he... We traded Jerry for Sally. Is that what you're saying? You got younger. <laughs> you, it was like a player, a player to be named later. It's like what yeah, uh, so... it's like what Jerry Krause had in mind with the Bulls rebuild, but only it didn't go as planned. And you guys did a lot better. Yeah, right. Although Jerry Krause getting Sally Kane was one of the greatest sporting event moves ever. Mike, yeah. you Mike, you mentioned before that how they you know they trained you very quickly to become the board chair. If you could uh, tell us, what do you find to be the ABCs of board training and like board development and, and that type of thing. So I believe a board chair or a committee chair or the best leaders in the world are the people who let the people they believe know more than them make a lot of the decisions. When I was hiring, uh, I'm ahead of the search for me to hire Rabbi Karen Kanar. We got, went through a very difficult time for the two years after Rabbi Shapiro decided to retire. And it was a really tough time. And I made one rule uh, as chair. I said, me, the current president, and the next president can't vote. We can talk all we want. But I do not want to put any of these three people in a position where they have to be listened to or they can be blamed for whatever happens. And I believe that. I believe that as a chair of a, of, of a committee, a chair of a board, or chair of a, com- a company, you have to hire people better than you, smarter than you, everything about you, and you have to listen to them. It's why I say that one Republican and one Democratic president in my lifetime were the two best presidents, even though I didn't agree with a lot of what they did but they allowed people to do their jobs. And that's what you have to do. If you are going to run it like it's just yours, you will fail. The other big thing about being a camp chair is you have to be engaged with the customers. Those customers are generally the parents for a camp chair, yes, and the counselors and the staff. And you have to be really respectful um, and you have to think about why they say what they're saying instead of thinking about why they're right or wrong. And you take that stuff back to the people that they take their thoughts back to the people that are helping you uh, move the camp forward and you discuss it with people. I can tell you that when, when I was the camp chair, the hardest thing I had to do was become um, informed about the LGBTQ movement, something the reform movement was. Um, very strong on, and it was so difficult for me to even be able to say the correct names because I'm 55 years old. But I went to Boston, I went to learn, I listened to my team, I was on the committee calls, I was on the meetings, and I learned. And I learned every side of it, the side of people who didn't want things to change, the side of people who didn't want things to change. But you end up, if you have smart people around you, end up generally making the right decision. And that's what you have to do. You also have to be an incredible fundraiser. You can't, you cannot um, think that you have that, that you can't ask people for money. You cannot be the chair of a not-for-profit and not be a great fundraiser or willing to be a great fundraiser. I'm lucky that I live with one of the greatest fundraisers ever, 
a woman who said these two things. She said when she was asked to lead the capital campaign at BJDE, which raised $16 million, most of it during the worst economic time of our life, before we're living in right now, 2008-2009, that she would not ask people for money. And then she did. She asked everybody. Who also said, as a, a team member of the Jewish United Fund, I love phonathon. That's a disease. Nobody <laughs> says they love phonathon. That's true. No. She believes in on, the mission on either side. so much. Yeah, she believes right on either side. She believes in the mission, and that's what you have to do. You have to believe in the mission of Jewish camping. There is nothing in my eyes more important to keeping our Judaism alive than getting kids to go to camp. And when we moved from Glenview to Deerfield, even though our membership grew by 40% and our, our, our camp age membership grew by 60%, it got much tougher because we were in a much more Jewish area in Deerfield than we were in Glenview. And there were many more Jewish things to do, and camp was no longer a priority. Baseball, all that other stuff, because they had all, all their friends were Jewish. And it is a ridiculous uh, phenomenon that we go from having 500 kids in our religious school to 1,100 kids in our religious school and less kids at Osri, and it was the same people managing it. It's, it's a tough thing, and it's really tough where parents decide that they've done enough Jewishly. And, um, and I, I don't know the fix. I don't know the fix. But it, it bothers me. Mike, you said something really interesting that I want to go back to. You know, I think that a lot of people, lay leaders and community members that are involved in non-for-profits oftentimes have this stigma of not being willing to, you know, get down and dirty and, and do the dirty work. And you said something that I think is, is incredible to hear from a lay leader, which is, and I quote, I love fundraising. So if you could just talk about that for one minute. First of all, when did you fall in love with fundraising was it love at first sight? Was it? Did it become an acquired taste? And what do you say to those out there who really do love the organizations that they work with and that they assist, but are a bit timid about getting involved with the fundraising side of things? So let me go to the first point first. I don't think, you can play back the tape, I said I love fundraising. I said you have to love raising funds. Fundraising is tough. It's tough because you end up, thinking you know what somebody should give because you look at their house or you, you don't, you, you have to continually remind yourself you don't know what's behind the curtain. You know, they may be taking care of two sick parents. They may have other issues. And so it's tough. It's really tough. But the way to get through it, the toughness, is to realize that you are not asking for yourself. I am not asking for Mike Frazen to put money into my bank. I'm asking to send kids to Jewish camp or to support uh, Israelis who have uh, suffered uh, through terrorism or accidents or all sorts of things and to provide them with an opportunity to feel like they're whole in a place like the Israeli Sports Center for the Disabled. Disabled. If you can get in your mind that you are not asking for yourself and that you would do what you are asking people to do, I think it's a layup going back to basketball. doesn't make it easy. doesn't make it easy to make that phone call. doesn't make it easy to walk into that house. doesn't make it easy to be disappointed. But you didn't do it for you. You did it for the greater good. It's why when somebody contacts me and asks me to 
donate something to a building of an organization that I don't know anything about, but I know that person. And that person wouldn't be asking if the money wasn't needed. I really seriously consider it, even though I couldn't tell you six months later where I gave that money. I just know who asked it. Was that me? Were you referring to me or somebody else? Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, so Mike, with all your with all your of business, course it was you. <laughs> Mike, with all your business experience, uh, what you know, I, I know you've been also, you know, I'm sure in your capacity and in being involved in these organizations, you've given assistance even on sort of the operational side. I know you said the importance of listening, which is obviously huge. But what, what sort of advice have you offered to non-for-profits um, from what you've sort of gained and learned in your, in your for-profit work? Um, I think the single biggest thing I do is introduce them. I, I know a lot of people. I know a lot of um, people who know people. The key to being a successful fundraiser is trying to find the next connection, trying to um, introduce people trying to say, tell me what I can help with, right? I'm not always going to be the perfect person to ask. The best ask is peer-to-peer. But I can find people who may have had peers that, uh, who may know peers that could ask. Um, I think you, um, the other advice I would give is at the beginning, when you're doing it, take somebody with you. And, and let them evaluate how you've done afterwards and let them step in when you might be fumbling, right? Michael Jordan didn't make his sophomore basketball team. He became one of the two greatest players of all time. Uh, wait, wait, Mike, whoa, whoa, Mike whoa, 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 slow down. Whoa, whoa. One of the two greatest players of all time? NBA basketball players of all time. Can you clarify um, that statement? I mean, I, it, surely you could. Are you naming a San Diego conquistador? Are you going to try and tell me that one of them or a L.A. Clipper? Uh, no, LA I'm just trying Laker? to say who who. No, I think Michael is the clear number one. I, I don't. Who, I don't think. I think it's difficult to compare errors. I don't know if Babe Ruth is the greatest baseball player of all time. Anybody could pitch and hit. Mike, I mean, I who's it. the number two in your mind? You're saying LeBron is what? It's LeBron. And I Jordan? think Michael Jordan is number one. Okay. Um, and I think LeBron James is one A. Uh, the greatest teacher. Um, I ever had in fundraising um, was Jimmy Alfred Leahy, rest in peace. Not a, not a Jew. He became the second set of consultants for our BGAB webs, our BGAB um, moving from Longview to Deerfield. He had a heart of gold. He gave to our campaign. He lived our campaign. He taught my wife how to ditch the pitch. You did not convince anybody in fundraising of why you're right. You need them to convince themselves. And he was so soft-spoken. It's interesting that his wife lives in the building I live in. Um, he had such an effect on my wife and through her me because he was just a beautiful man who taught us that giving was something we were taught to do. And when he passed away, my wife was asked to eulogize him along with all of the people at a, at a, I think it was the Union of Chicago. And all she could say was, I never heard him say anything that wasn't true, that wasn't kind, that wasn't on point. 
He loved to laugh. He loved to tell stories, but in every one of them, there was a message. And I think that's what you want to do. What's incredible about the greatest fundraisers is they, if you're going into houses, which you can't do right now, but you can zoom, and you pick out something that's being said or something that is being um, on their walls, and you connect the person to that, and if you can get them to show emotion, they're going to do what they never considered they would do. And Jimmy Alfred had this knack to walk into somebody's house and uh, along with you and whisper in your ear, you see that painting up there? Ask him about it. And that's a gift. And, um, and you, you would never look at this man on the street and think he's raised or had organizations raised maybe a, a billion dollars. Who knows how many? It's incredible. Um, the, one of his proteges is head of development for the greatest Chicago food depository doing extraordinary things. Uh, and one of the greatest not-for-profits in certainly in Illinois. And it, you know, if, if anybody, if, you, if, if a person, if somebody, if everybody will say that person was kind, you know, that person was the best of all type people. Every single person would say he was kind, and he cared. And that's what you have to do in fundraising. And that's why you take somebody with you, because it's tough. It's nerve-wracking. You drive up to the house, you don't want to go in, and you've got a mentor like that who who can guide you without taking over, who um, can see where you're struggling and step in and with a wink, say two sentences, and you're back on track. Um, you know, those are gifts. and. You know, I worked for somebody at Burger King back in Sacramento, California, that I would have run through a wall for. He was like five years older than me, but he had a gift of being so respectful while being tough. Jimmy Alfred had a gift of being so respectful by being so kind. And so does his wife, and so does everybody who's ever worked for him. And uh, sadly, his life ended too early, and uh, he'd be helping so many other people. Um, and that's it. Uh, the more kind people you can be around, the more kind you're going to be. And those are the special people. Mike, Just like you guys. <laughs> kind people. We try. Trying to save the world. Trying to save the world. Spend your days repairing the world. Trying to save the world. We say in camp, trying to save the world one flag raising at a time. Mike, one it's flag raising, one eight-year-old in time. Yeah. It's uh, it's really been a pleasure. I just before we say goodbye, I do have just one short, uh, little quick question for the road. Uh, when you travel, which I know you you do every once in a while, um, you you didn't happen to be uh, particular about uh, uh, digital boarding pass versus a paper boarding pass, are you? I hate, I hate as much as I'm all technology. I just hate not being touching. Just not having it. I am. Oh, oh yes. We had a whole argument about, about this yes, earlier in the show. I knew it. Ah, oh, a man after my heart, Mike. I'm so happy. I have ADHD. I have to go find that thing. First of all, I've lost my my boarding pass six <laughs> times. When we get to the airport, I give my wife everything. Just take it. Guide me to the gate. Take me to the gate. It's been our stick for thir- almost 36 years. We've been married. I I have a lot to say, but when it comes to, to following the ways to get me somewhere, take it, baby. I haven't a clue. 
<laughs> okay, but when you fly by yourself, you like your printed but hard paper boarding pass. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay yeah, just okay. make sure everyone. Is, is there another way? <laughs> I know what not to do. Don't use your watch. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Mike, listen, we really appreciate it. This was tons of fun. And, uh, Anytime. And uh, hopefully all your uh, your, your 3,000 Facebook follower, uh, followers are, uh, are looking forward to this. They can get it on the debate. All there's left. My favorite day in the last month was when four Republicans and three Democrats defriended me on the same day. Then I knew I was telling the truth. <laughs> Very good. Okay, listen, Mike, we really appreciate it. I love Mike. Mike's a great guy. Mike probably has one of the um, the biggest hearts of anyone that I know. Um, he may or may not have reference to a time that I asked him for money recently <laughs> that he just did for me. Um, and uh, he's just a he's just a good guy. And I and I I love the way that he conveys the responsibilities of the board in terms of fundraising and the, and, the, and the proper mindsets. And uh, I think it's a good lesson for for all of us uh, in the nonprofit work as, world as professionals and as lay leaders. Like, what do you think? I, I, I mean, I've said this uh, many times. Mike is like a, a non-for-profit's dream lay leader. Um, I think he, I, I don't, again, I don't know what it was like when he first started, but he really has the relationship and that, that healthy amount of space. Perfect. He's got that down perfect. Um, and he's just a huge asset. And there's nothing he wouldn't do for whatever organization he was involved in. And sometimes he's doing things for organizations that he's not involved in. So I think he's, He's awesome. He's awesome, and you're right. I think he really is, and should be sort of the paradigm of proper, uh, you know, lay leadership and and, and community assistance. And, and also, I, very very good golfer. Just for the record, right, he's so very I, good. I've never golfed with him. He's but I'm very good. Forward to that, and the goat conversation was a good conversation. I think we should just move it to like after. Well, it'll be like an extra. It'll be like an extra a hidden track. Are you going to talk about the fact that he? Prefers a paper boarding pass? Or no, not, I thought that was. We're not going to go. I, there. I think that also he basically said like, "I'm not the rule. I'm the exception no, to the no, rule." No, no, oh no. He he talked about why, but he clearly. I knew it. I knew it. I, we're gonna. I think this is that's a good question we should be asking people. I think that's a. I think that's it's a uh, it's telling. The paper boarding. I pass. saw a great thing uh, recently. It was like, the shopping cart is the true testament to like how society would run. Um. Like if there was no like checks and balances, because like returning the shopping cart is something that you don't have to do. Mm. But so whether you do it or not is very telling about your personality. Oh, okay. I like that. Because you're not forced to do it. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you return the shopping cart? I return the shopping cart as a rule, unless I have to be parked somewhere where I'm no like I'm like three like parking rows. So would over. you say that's like nine out of ten times? I would say more. I would say it's times? like. 49 out of 50 times because you want to park closer to the store. Yeah, no, for right? sure. But if it's like a Thursday night and I'm hitting Jewel and there's a lot of parking, where will you, not where will you leave it though? Are you willing to like leave it? You know, I'll leave it like next to another shopping cart in the vicinity. Uh huh. So that way I'm like making the shopping cart retrievers job a little bit easier. Yeah. Because he only I'm has, probably like, he has two. He has I'm two probably there. like 47 out of 50 times. I will put it back nicely into the thing. I may like push it across from one lane to another. Oh, and just hope you make it. No, if it misses it, I'll fix it. But I don't I don't miss. You don't miss. <laughs> okay, let's let's move on. Okay, moving on. By the way, quick plug everyone. Um a few episodes back we did a good uh, roast reading of the roast sent into us. Uh we we wanted to do that again. So if everyone could uh, give it do us a favor, give us a five-star rating and roast us in the reviews. That way we'll have some uh, some more to read. Um please 
please, please, please do that. Either WhatsApp it to us or go on the iTunes podcast app and, uh, and roast away. And, uh, I hope, uh, if you've listened to the first, uh, the first one, you have an idea of what we're looking for. Um, and, uh, be creative, be funny. We can take it. Our next segment is ask the amateur. We had a, co- a question submitted to us from a listener and, uh, we are going to try our best as the amateurs to address it. And here we go. All right, go for it. Yes. The question goes like this. Uh, one sec. Here it is. My coworker puts on brutal smelling cologne. I'm wondering what's a respectable and nice way to get him to stop wearing it. Once we get back into the office, I don't want to just tell him his cologne stinks. I'd rather not sit there gagging all day and it not be awkward. Um, I'd like to be able to breathe again. Thank you. So is the cologne bad smelling or is it just like there's too much of it and therefore it's just like overkill? What do you, what do you think is the implication here? Okay. So that's a good question. Let's assume it's the latter. Because who wears like really like poor smelling perfume? I feel like it's not usually a problem. Right. I think usually people are okay with whatever is the scent. It's just sometimes. It has to be done in moderation. Right. When we say, yeah, it's like, oh, that's offensive. It's not usually the smell. I mean, there are offensive smells, but this guy's particularly asking about overuse Shout of out cologne. back to episode uh, six, Black Panther cologne. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, listen, you, you, um, you know, you could get creative and you could start wearing like your own wild like shower yourself in your own cologne so it's like a cologne war yeah just it's just yeah like drop it you know and then do you think like how do you think that plays out he'll be like what are you you doing man and you'll be like so one of two what are you doing man right so one of two things either he'll be like oh man you're wearing way too much cologne you're like oh my gosh all right i'll make you a deal how about we both scale back our cologne oh that's that's right to the point i like that that'd be cool that's a dagger the other option possibility which really won't accomplish what you want is like you you stroll in he like comes over goes i just gotta tell you you smell great today um and that is not (laughs) that would not accomplish what you wanted to so but at least i think if you just shower yourself in cologne you know you have a chance of of sort of breaching the subject in a very not awkward way spin zone though let's say um the second scenario happens that you just laid out and he's like, wow, you smell great. And like, then like he thinks like you're into cologne and then like, he just like starts talking about the cologne and like you have to pretend like you're bought in. You're right. You're right. So how does that go? Bad idea. I think you should blame it on someone else. That's always kind of the go-to by the way. Oh, I have, Oh no, I have a better idea. Well, let me just finish. I have an idea. Ready to go. Let me finish that idea. The go-to, you always blame it on someone else. Just kind of goes like, Hey, I, uh, I, I hate to do this, but I know if it was me, I'd want you to know, like Sally from, HR. From, HR. From, Sally's always no, from HR. She can't be HR because it's too personal <laughs> here. It's like Sally from Accounts Receivable. Like she just mentioned to me that like she thinks you're wearing a little bit too much cologne, but she likes you. <laughs> that so, I think is so, a lawsuit. That sounds like a lawsuit. So I have a better idea. Sally's not I, from HR. I have a better idea. Just scale back your cologne. Just blame it on allergies. Oh, allergies. What do you do? Like you like like you like rub your eyes a lot? Yeah, you're like, spazzed. <laughs> Like, sir, are you okay? Like, there's just a scent. I, 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 I can't handle. I can't. I can't handle it. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Yeah. And then you just, you just do that. All right. Those are some pretty good ideas. I gotta be honest. That's not bad. You take those to the bank. Yeah. So whoever submitted that question, there's your answer. You can always rely on us. So if anyone else out there of our listeners has a problem that they need solved, email it to us nine ninety talk at gmail dot com. Send us an Instagram DM or Facebook message, and we will be there to help you out. 
And all those all those sallies from accounts receivable, uh, I I did not mean to inculcate you. Also, I will say I think we're getting good at this that we can change the name of the segment from "Ask the Amateur" to "Ask the Semi Pro." No, 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 definitely no? not. I think we got lucky. <laughs> you think the fact that we're two for two is lucky? No, I mean we're like one and a half. <laughs> okay, well, all right. That and that, that was "Ask the Amateur." Ask the Amateur. Okay, uh, our next segment is. Uh, it's called Ask Uncle Chuck. Ask Uncle Chuck. We're gonna call up our Uncle Chuck, and we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna his opinion him. on stuff. So I just want to be clear. We're, we're gonna. There's a specific question I want to ask Uncle Chuck. Uh, a lot of people have asked us if we would be talking about the Last Dance. We did get a lot of Michael and Jordan basketball sports talk with with our interview Mike. But there is one more person I would like his take on the Last Dance. Is that Uncle Chuck? It is Uncle Chuck. Here yeah. we go. Hello, Uncle Chuck. Welcome to oh, 990 Talk. Man. Welcome to 990 Talk. It's your debut. Oh, surely what's up, man? What's up, bro? So the segment's called the segment's called Ask Uncle Chuck, and uh, Ari's got a question for you, so he's just gonna ask it. Okay, Uncle Chuck, here it goes. A lot of people have been asking us our our take on the Last Dance, and it's it's hard for us to really formulate an opinion. Um, and I haven't really watched the whole thing yet, though. But we are curious to know. We this we felt like was a perfect tee up for introducing the Ask Uncle Chuck segment. What does Uncle Chuck think of the Last Dance? I mean. I'm sure you have a lot of Chicago listeners, so I don't think my take's going to be so popular, but I'll give it if you want it. Well, that's a good point. We we, we have some crazy listeners out there. We, I'm sure most of our surely are most of our listeners Chicago listeners. I would say it's 45%. So it's not more than half, but it's the biggest percentage. And not every Chicago person is a Bulls fan. And well, not every Chicago I, person grew up in Chicago. So I would I think we're I think well, listen, I think it's more about the age bracket. I mean, if someone was born like if someone's like under the age of 25, they probably like are all like all oh, LeBron, 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 LeBron. So it's really about it's not about who well, you're from. Wait who? till I wait till I start on LeBron. Okay, okay. hold on. We're not asking <laughs> about LeBron, <laughs> Chuck. We're asking about Le- Michael Jordan. But it's more. I think it's the point is it's more about where you not. It's less about where you live and more about your age. But I digress. Right, fair enough. I just don't want to get dirty looks next time I'm at Jules. You know. <laughs> okay, let's go, man. Okay, let's do the take. Just spin it out. I have just spin a bunch of points. I've been thinking about this for a while. I've been discussing with a bunch of my friends. Like I said, not a popular, but I'll start. I'm going to give you a few points. Hear me out, okay? All right. First point, Jordan had editorial control of the documentary. This is true. Is that true? Of course As it's I true. Say, First of all, of course, Jordan yeah, also had control of the media. He, he, he manipulated the media. That's another thing. It's just like Chinese propaganda. Okay, fair. Okay, it's a little, exa- it's a little bit exaggerated, but okay. I don't, I don't think so. Okay, we'll take it. Go on. No politics on the show. Number Go on. two. They waited until Krauss was dead so he couldn't defend himself. Okay. Fair. That touches a nerve there. Go on. Number three, supposed to be a family. Basketball, all sports, supposed to be family events, right? They have cursing on it, all talking about stuff that aren't family friendly. Bothered me a lot. Okay, fair. We don't have to get into that. Go on. Jordan, in my opinion, always has been overrated. He doesn't win without Jerry Krauss. He is the real goat. He masterminded the team, and let's not forget Paxson, Cool Coach. Does he win it without them? Nope, not even a chance. That's where just you like, go. You go Paxson, Cool Coach. Of course, just like Bill Russell. I don't know if you remember that Celtics team. He never wins without Bob Cousy and Havel. For the record, we could, we're calling Uncle Chuck. Uncle Chuck. You may think Uncle Chuck is like seventy years old and remembers Bill Russell. Uncle Chuck is <laughs> no, no, no. Not he's seventy. Like, I am he's, a basketball purist. 
I appreciate the game the way it was supposed to be played. Below the rim. That's it. <laughs> what? Below the rim. Of course. Now we're getting on this because they talk about him, the pro claim. He was the GOAT, the greatest ever. First of all, let me ask you guys. You guys are NBA fans, right? I am. Who's the logo? Jerry West. Right. So if someone was the GOAT, wouldn't they be the logo? I think it's more of a branding question. No, but he brings up a point. Well, We've heard it before. I don't think there's Jerry any... West, do you know how many rings? First of all, Jerry West, one of the greatest. Okay. One of the greatest, if not the greatest, for sure the greatest shooting guard. Then, as an executive, he won nine rings. What did, what did Michael Jordan do as an executive? Drafted Kwame Brown. <laughs> <laughs> he drafted Kwame Brown. First of all, he didn't. Did he draft Kwame Brown? Of course. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm mixing up. I was about to say Eddie Curry. No, yeah, you're right. He drafted Kwame Brown. That's correct. That's that's thing. The, the goat. He's not the goat. Never has been. Never will be. So, Another thing. Who won when Bird played Jordan? I mean, it was Bird. Bird. Greatest shooter ever. I mean, he played the right way, Bird. Also, if you look at the Dream Team, how he played. He was there. He had back problems. He didn't take load management off to rap like LeBron did. Who 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 is uh, your top five? I'm afraid to um, ask. Before my top five, I want to say another thing that's always bothered me. Okay. If you look at the 1984 draft, they say great players: Olajuwon, Jordan. You know, Stockton, Barkley, Stockton. I don't understand, and it will never make sense to me how 15 teams passed on Stockton. Well, I mean, they're drafting a basketball player, not a CPA. <laughs> okay, so let me ask you a question then. If you combine, I'm a numbers guy. I don't know if you're a numbers guy. I'm a numbers guy. Are you an analytic? Are you? Are you? I, I, you're I'm a saying, basketball. You're not. Pure. You're not an eye test guy. I would think you're an eye test uh, guy, I'm Chuck. A, I'm a numbers guy. If you combine Stockton's points and assists per game, do you know what you get? I might be off by one or two, but do you know what you get? You're saying like what the points he was responsible for per game. 46 points a game Stockton contributed. He played 18 seasons. 16 seasons he played every single game. How could you pass up on that? I'm going to give you my top five, and we can discuss it. But I don't, I don't think you could dispute this top five. Honest to God, you could try. I don't think you could. Okay, shoot. I'm going to do it. All right. Bird. Can't be, can you dispute Bird? I think he's in the top five. I don't know if he's number one, but okay. Top five, on. yeah. Stockton. Probably not in the top five. Go on. <laughs> not top five? Lost to Jordan twice in the finals. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> we all know that due to David Stern disliking Havlicek and Stockton, he threw it. Just look at the foul line. Look how many times the Bulls made it to the foul line there. Okay, back to your top five. All right, top five. We got Stockton. Jerry West cannot be disputed. Ken Duncan, power forward. Okay, I accept that. Dave Cowan, center. Oh my God, Cowan's. <laughs> he played at that time on the Celtics. He was only 6'9. Do you guys know who my coach is? Red Arbach. Yes. Okay, I, th- I, th- I thought it would be like Jerry Sloan, Mike D'Antoni, no, Larry Bird. Like, nah, it, it came down to Arbach. Pat Riley or Bobby Knight? Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight. What about uh, not John Calipari? All right, Uncle Chuck, look. 
We appreciate your feedback. We're, I we're... just know on basketball, I just want to give a shout out. Greatest high school ball player to ever play in this city, Jeremy Goldberg. Anthony Davis. I don't know. Jeremy Goldberg. Anthony Jeremy Davis. Goldberg. Jeremy Goldberg. I don't know. He could have made it. His shot, unbelievable. In my opinion, greatest high school you're saying better than better than Anthony Davis and Derrick Rose. That's what you're saying. By far, no questions in my mind. Okay. Do you think um, yeah. Do you think uh, the, the shout out that he just got should be deserving of a donation to Camden Gill Midwest from Jeremy Goldberg? Um. Yeah, but I would like Josh Rosen to match any donation he does. No, I think I don't want that. I want him to like triple it at least because it might be too low. Josh Rosen's a great man. I think he would love to do that. Okay. Well, I think we should have a conversation with him about that. Yeah. Well, All right, Unc. I look forward to it. Keep up the great work, guys. All right, Thank Unc. We so appreciate much. it, man. Take care, bud. All right. Take care. Bye. Always, always good for a hot take. Okay. And that is Ask Uncle Chuck. And with that, we now move on to our next segment, the final segment of the day, entitled Guess the Non-For-Profit. All right. Here we go. So for uh, Name the Non-For-Profit, I'm going to read off a couple uh, true non-for-profits and uh surely i'm going to give you the name and you're going to have to tell me what you believe they do okay number one is called clean cooking alliance clean cooking alliance mm-hmm. um hmm. this can go a, a variety of ways maybe they're into cooking maybe they're into cleaning Oh, but maybe that's the point. It's the, it's the intersection of cleaning and cooking. So maybe it is uh, an alliance between bakers and janitorial staff. Uh-huh. And, like, they get together. They, they form yeah, an alliance. Yeah, and they have, they, and they have they an alliance. They have, they have seminars. They have conferences together. They confer. They have trainings. They have seminars. Yeah, no. So it's not. Not um, even close? No, not even okay, close. Okay, let's I mean, it's not, not close. It's... So basically, the the organization is sets out to provide people who do not otherwise have sanitary or safe ways to prepare their food. Um, they have three billion. It, it notes that three billion people depend on polluting, open fires, and inefficient and dangerous stoves to cook their food. So this charity provides modern, safe cook stoves to underserved communities throughout the world, from Chinese farmers to Mayan villagers. I was way off. Yeah, you're pretty far off, but um, appreciate your effort, obviously. Sounds like a nice not-for-profit. Yeah. All right, here's another one. Um, this one is called, it was, uh, it was, the project was called, at least after the fact, Shaving Away the Eyebrows. What do you, what do you believe is the backstory there? Um, maybe it was some sort of fundraiser to preserve the Mona Lisa. Shaving away the eyebrows? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're close. Keep going. Am I, am I close? Yeah. Whoa. I'm no. never close. No, you're not. Oh. You're not even close, actually. <laughs> uh, Cyberger. So had, you know the Mona Lisa has no eyebrows, right? Yeah. Cyberger had some of the longest eyebrows in Indiana. They were so long that he had to brush them every day. They measured more than three inches in length. Um, the one thing that was even more important to him was the Bloomfield Rotary Club's campaign for the Rotary Club. Shout out Rotary Club. That's Nikki why Scott. I did this one. Uh, the Bloomfield Rotary Club's campaign for the polio eradication. So according to these different news sites, it started out as a lighthearted joke in which his fellow club members said that people would probably pay to trim his eyebrows. After thinking about it, he agreed. And uh, that gives me an idea, he did it by for the way. charity. And tickets for trimming eyebrows started at $100 for one swipe with the razor. Uh, and he raised, 
A few thousand dollars, I guess. I think that we should do the opposite with regard to your mustache. Um, I think we should too. If anyone who's seen me recently knows, I got a big bushy beard, and I would love a good excuse to keep my mustache. And Camp McGill and West could use the money. So, if uh, anyone wants to pledge, what's our number? Five thousand dollars. No, I think I go higher. Okay, ten. Ten thousand dollars. If we can raise ten thousand dollars, Ari Strulowitz will rock a mustache for how long? I mean, for ten thousand dollars, if we raise ten thousand dollars, at least seven days, at least a whole week. Just a week? Two weeks? Way more. I, there's there's one problem. With a thousand, here, how about this? How about this? A thousand dollars a week. A day, you mean? No, I can't. Not ten thousand. I can't keep it for ten weeks. You why crazy? Not? I'll tell you why. Because people don't know this, but I have like this really bad like double chin situation. You didn't see that coming, did you? I mean, I, I was like a little bit mind blown because like no one would know this. We haven't right. seen your chin in who knows how long. Correct. And if you know me well, you know that I had jaw surgery. Just like that was at some point I had jaw surgery. And the way my jaw settled, I have a, I have a, I have a pretty, pretty ugly fat chin. I sympathize with your issue, but it also pains me to hear that you're going to be leaving money on the table for Cam. I'm rest. not. I'm not leaving on the table. Let's get $10,000. I'll keep a mustache for a couple of weeks. That's all. Okay. It's going to be a creepy mustache, but whatever. All right. Let's do one so more. So that's good. Let's do one more of these uh, uh, guess the nonprofit here. Um, and here's a great one. Ready? Venom for the children. Wow. Um, venom for the children? Venom for the children. Um, maybe this is some sort of way to fade to way to feed baby snakes I'm going on the venom piece here I, I don't i have no i'm at a loss what that baby snakes yeah because like when we say children we're referring to like baby snakes not like humans nick lasoeth or lasoeth he's done a lot of crazy events in his lifetime um and he's always been uh especially helpful and supportive of children's charities so his latest stunt was he locked himself into a small glass room filled with 300 venomous spiders. They included redbacks, black house spiders, tarantulas, and more. Sounds like a camp guy. They all had venom. No? The goal of the stunt was to succeed in raising over $50,000 for the children. Variety assists children. Variety was the, the his favorite children's charity, and they assist children with uh, disabilities so they can live fuller and richer lives. Did and, he raise the money? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Did he survive? I, I believe so, yeah. He frequently does this. I guess he does a lot of these types of stunts, and he gets stung by snakes and pits and spider. Remember cages, that show, sharks. Fear Factor? It reminds me of that a little bit. He frequently does this three weeks, a okay, three weeks at a time using his famed Zen method. This guy's crazy. Yeah. This, of course, is done with a live. Okay, yeah, wow. Um, I was off on that one. Okay, well. You were off, but Venom for the Children. I think it's a nice message, you know. There's some certain people. There's nothing they wouldn't do to help children. Yeah. All right. Anyway, great episode. There you have it. 990 Talk. Until next time. In the words of the great AJ Barons, homies looking out for me, they the ones who family. Homies looking out for me, they the ones who family. I've been on that melody. It's obvious this
Okay, I can um, accept that. Is Tiger Woods unequivocally uh, the best golfer of all time? Uh, no, he's not unequivocally. Whoa. Well, uh, okay, so here's how I teach. I teach by not answering questions. <laughs> I teach the Socratic way. What would be a reason that you could make an argument that Tiger Woods wasn't the greatest golfer of all? I couldn't even formulate one. But it could be the, I, only, really? the only thing I could think of is that is and I've heard this said is that you know there may not be a sport out there that is so affected by the technology around the equipment mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that that maybe you, right. you ever you ever hit a persimmon wood wood I I I I've, I actually have hit one of those old woods. Yeah, and, how, um, how far does it go compared to the, well, actually, the newest uh, thing? What I made? found what I found most startling was uh, the the sting in my hands. <laughs> about the golf balls the fact that you could stop it when you couldn't stop because when you when jack nicholas played he had hit the ball 20 yards short of the green to run it up to where he wanted to put it right i think tiger woods may be the greatest golfer of all time maybe i don't know if he is greater than bobby jones uh because I, the, the technology of that and not only that I mean, I'm not saying that this should be the reason, but the ability of these people to fly in private planes from, the, you know, that's why basketball players are one of the reasons they're better now is they don't fly in crowded planes and go through crowded airports, the nutritionists, the, all the things we know. And so that's why I, I strongly say, I don't know how you can compare errors. You've got a Babe Ruth and this chubby who can pitch and hit. There's not another player like that, right? And that they did it at that level. How do you say that Alex Rodriguez is better than him? Well, I would. I, I would my response can. would be. I don't know that you can't. My yeah. response regarding Michael Jordan is that the two, what I would say, greatest factors of his excellence would translate into any era. And number one, that is his his mental capacity and his drive. And number two is is his athletic ability. That would have translated to any era. And that's why I think that he could be the exception to that rule. The only argument I would make about Tiger Woods, which I feel is worth making, is as follows. Although I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm building this in my head as we speak. And it's like this. If we, in fact, believe that he is competing on a stage with the world's greatest golfers, as did in every era, the world's greatest golfers were gathered together, I don't believe compared to others in the same era did anyone stand as high above their competition as Tiger Woods did. Oh, you can't say that. No? Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer every week battled. And they were two totally different people. Jack Nicholas was cerebral, you know, did had coaches. Arnold Palmer had a terrible swing, but an incredible cowboy like drive. I mean, golf was a lot more exciting when you had more than one person and if one person took a little hiatus, the sport still thrived. Right. I think golf really got hurt. I'll I, I tell you a story about Jack Nicholas, And this is the kind of mind that Tiger has for sure. Jack was at a, a Monday night event. So they had the pro-am on Mondays at a new tournament that week. And he gives a speech. And then a guy raises his hand, asks questions. He's Jack in your speech. You just said you'd never have missed a three-foot putt. Jack, yesterday, number nine, 
you missed the three foot, but actually was less than three foot. Jack looked at the guy, stared at him. He said, I have never missed a three foot. <laughs> he believed, he believed that he believed that just like tiger or, or, or Phil Mickelson can just think of shots that no human being can hit. You know, the shots that he hit on that payoff hole from 220 yards from the sand trap next to the water. And the other guy is eight feet from the hole. I mean, those guys, that's just special, special talent. But there are other people that had it. I bet, I would say that, that Tiger Woods might not say um, that he was the greatest golfer of all time. I think he might say Jack Nicholson. And it's not out of so much respect. I think Tiger is the kind of guy who would say what he thinks. And Jack Nicholson changed the game of golf and every weekend against great golfers, great, great golfers, right? And so I think um, that Tiger Woods is the greatest golfer that I have seen in the last whatever period of time, but I don't know if he's the greatest of all time, nor would I venture. We need one of those ESPN science things to go through the technology. Remember those things? The sports science, yeah. They, yeah, and, and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you on basketball. He's got the most championship rings. Bill Russell. Bill Russell changed the game of basketball. Yeah, but Bill Nobody, Russell. He, he was Bill Rodman. He was Dennis Rodman before Dennis Rodman. Mike, but Bill Russell played. He cared about Mike, winning. That's true, but Mike, he played against a bunch of six foot six white guys. He did? Yeah. He played, I, against, he played against Will. Yeah, that was at the end. Changes. Okay, you're right. So you're right. So you're right. So, but, uh, okay, right, so you're right. right there was right. ten team. There was ten teams back then. He did play against Elgin yeah. and Wilt, but in the and 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 the okay. end of the day, he cared a lot more about winning than Will Chamberlain did. So he had the he had a he had a so much he, bigger well, uh, mental advantage. But I think that Michael Jordan, if a six foot six guy on. that could fly, hold played on, in that I'm era. Your first point. I gotta tell you your first point. You think Bill Russell wouldn't have been as good a player playing against better competition? Are you saying? Then he wouldn't have his game wouldn't have risen like Michael Jordan's game rose. I do believe I do believe Barkley, that Bill Russell when he played against. Yes. When he played against Larry Bird. I he played against Magic Mike, Johnson. I concur that Larry you that, can't that, say that I concur that Bill Russell would be good in any era because he was an athletic Bill freak who was mentally driven. But at the same time, I do not think he would have won eleven championships because there would have been more competition. Well, of course not. Nobody's won eleven championships. Of course not. Of course not. Fascinating but, conversation. But nobody's won 11 championships. Nobody's won that many. Nobody's played as many games as him. I'm not saying he's better than Michael Jordan. But you can't discount winning. If Michael Jordan was Ernie Banks and never won a World Series or never won an uh, NBA championship, would he be the greatest player of all time? No, he'd be Clyde Drexler. Well, well, okay, then how can you discount Bill Russell? It's okay. I, okay, it's a fair. Listen, are, yeah, no, I listen. believe that that Bill Russell is either Bill two Russell or three. To, Bill Russell went to Auschwitz with Red Auerbach. That might make him the greatest player of all time. <laughs> yeah, well, Red Auerbach and Bill Russell went to Auschwitz. It's like Ray Allen. Apparently, Bill, Ray Bill, Allen is like a big Bill, uh, Holocaust Bill historian. What? Apparently, Ray Allen is also like a big Holocaust historian now. Yeah. So um, I have a friend, Stuart Lane, who worked for the Mariners and built the Ken Griffey brand and worked for the Celtics and became very close with Bill Russell. And he would argue with you till day is long. Bill Russell is the greatest player of all time. And it's hard to, 
You, you can't really argue with him about Bill Russell. You can only point out Michael Jordan. And again, I will say there's a lot of those factors. The factors that you didn't travel as much with Bill Russell probably gave him more time. The factors that he took a bus made it worse for him. Mm-hmm. The fact that he didn't have all these trainers and all that stuff. The fact that Michael Jordan had a lot going on and there was so much more. He did commercials. Would he have been a lot better if he hadn't done that? Who knows? I can tell you they're both great. Well, it's, it's also, Mike, it's a case study because they are they were really the, the you know, they they were opposites of personalities. Because of all the racism that Bill Russell had to deal with, he became very introverted. Michael Jordan became this global icon. So, but Michael Jordan also would not, uh, as we saw in the last dance, endorse an African-American in North Carolina because he didn't want to talk about politics because it would have cost him money. I mean, he said that. He basically said it when he was interviewed. No, he would have said Republicans buy shoes too. He's any less of a basketball player, but it also put pressure on him and the pressure he didn't want to have to deal with. That doesn't make him a bad person at all, not at all. I'm just saying that everybody has those kind of issues, especially if you're people of color or minorities, which is a, which uh, I, I only hate one group of people. I hate racists. I hate them. I hate them. I hate people who don't like people because of their color or their skin. That's the only people I hate. But I'll say it. You see me say it. I always love me a good a good conversation about who's the goat in any given sport. Mike, oh, but we know Wayne Gretzky is the greatest hockey player of all time. That's yes, sure. yes, we can agree to that. Because people still have to skate, and nobody can pass the puck like that. It ha- it happens to be of all the sports that that may be you know NHL players are yeah. known to be like the least uh, health conscious, right? So maybe there really hasn't been a lot of development in the uh, off ice, in the off ice, and, and the equipment even. Although the yes, sticks definitely got a little a bit more whippy. Sport, when you're playing a team sport, you know if Michael never had Mike, if Michael never had Scotty, he wouldn't have won once, and he wouldn't have been the greatest player of all time, or somebody as good as Scotty. Mike, you he were, was the greatest competitor of all time. That I I will say, he was absolute. Uh, the stories of him, and I knew him a little. The stories of him and some of the things he did, just because he wouldn't lose, are—I mean, not—he's not a human in that way. And what about Tiger's comeback? Where does that rank in uh, in sports? I really rooted for it. I I I, I loved it. Uh, I watched a lot of it. Um, I try not to get too caught up in that kind of stuff, uh, just because I think we focus too much on athletes and politicians and are not enough about the people who do the really good work in the world um, and don't make a lot of money for it, you know, that kind of stuff. But I did bet some people that he would win another tournament. So I've enjoyed some stakes and, and things like that. <laughs> uh, um, so, I mean, uh, they're just incredible competitors. You know, the, I, I have a friend who grew up in San Diego who played with Phil Beckelson in high school. Phil, Phil probably, he said Phil probably won 60% of the time in high school. Maybe right around there. And then he went to college. And then he came home, and I still had the same swing, and he still had the same swing, and I never won because his mental focus was off the charts. They just don't, at that level, they don't believe they will fail. It's not in their mind, I can't, it's I will. Incredible. That's an extraordinary gift. We were we were before we got onto this conversation about who's the goat. Uh, we were talking about, I think you you had mentioned that the importance of bringing people along with you when fundraising. So you know to learn lessons yeah. and to to get that critique. Um, and then I think we derailed you. I apologize for that. 
it's okay. 